0: Welcome to My Life, Chassidah supplied. episode 371. Agmar Chassime and Hashanah Tova to everyone. It should be a beautiful, healthy year, year of success and prosperity in all matters, physical, spiritual, personal, psychological, emotional, at home, at work, success all around. And ultimately, and above all, should be a Shnaz gu'ula, This year's Tafshin Pei The Hebrew year 5782. 30 years ago, the Rebbe associated Tafshin Nunbez to tehe Neflois Bakoil. It should be wonders in everything. So we can speculate and say that shnas ploys bakoyl, Without the Nun, ploys wonders in everything. And in personal level and on a collective level, ultimately the greatest wonder of Kimet Seishem Erez Arenu Niflois, Nun Plois, Plois, the wonders that will be in the future, the near future when Mashiach comes. This program is dedicated in merit of Boruch, Binyamin Ben Menucha Lana, Miriam Baschay Altes, and Iqusil Ben Leah Rochel, Rochel Bas Liba Farkash dedicated by Pinchas Todr, Ben Miriam, and Sarabas Rachel Altist. So, this is considered a special Yom Kippur edition, because Yom Kippur is at the end of this week, on Thursday. But we'll begin with that which is timely, and that is that today was Vov Tishrei, the sixth day of Tishrei, the yard site of the Robertson Chana. And that would be... Uh, 57 years ago. It was Tavshin Chavay. So, and that Vav Tishrei, which was, of course, the Seder it was on Shabbat Shabbat Shuvah, the Rebbe Tzachanah, the Rebbe's mother passed away. I remember it as a child. I was seven, eight years old. I remember that Fabrengan quite well. Not the actual words of the Rebbe, but I remember sitting in my little cubicle. 770 was much smaller than It was this first, it was downstairs, but it was its first section. And the kids would sit in these little cubicles, which were like bookcases, so to speak. It would be emptied, and we would sit in there, and we were able to see the Rebbe back of the shul. I remember uh, that Shabbos, two things that stand out to me, was as a child, I remember that Rebbe stood up and danced to the nigan of Prozay's Teshu Yerushalayim. But it wasn't yet those words. Those words were added three years later in Tavshon Chavchesh. So then it was, a, it was, without the words, it was even a more lovely lebedika, like a simplest stereotype of Negan. And I remember the Rebbe stood up, and it was quite uh, always a scene when the Rebbe stood up, some, a sight to behold. And uh, the second thing I remember is when one of the secretaries of the Rebbe came over and spoke to the Rebbe, which was also not regular. Clearly there was something happening. And the Rebbe, uh, later I heard the Rebbe did Fabringa a little shorter than usual. He spoke also the, during the fabringen Haster, Aster, Ponai. It was Shabbos Pasha Vayyeh Shabbos Shuvah. So he spoke about God concealing his face, that I also remember those words. After the fabringen which was shortened, abbreviated to some extent, the Rebbe walked out. Instead of walking the regular left from 770 to go home, he walked to the right to Kingston Avenue and then up Kingston Quickly, briskly walking to his mother's home, and then when she was taken to the hospital, and the Rebbe went along, and that later that day before Shabbos ended, the Rebbe's was nostalgic. Rebbe's Of course, um, the Rebbe davened, the ummed every every day during that year. We have it actually in recording the Rebbe praying and davening, and ever then, ever since the Rebbe always every Vav was a Fabregen that the Rebbe would make a siyum and fabreng in honor of his mother. Another thing that the Rebbe did in honor of his mother was, of course, establishing the Rashi Sichas. The Rebbe began to explain every Shabbos a Rashi Sichas. Taking a Rashi from the Parsha, and in a very unique, pioneering way, Shute Shalmikra, the Rebbe developed an entire approach, and methodology of how to learn Chumash and Rashi. I've always wondered why Rashi? You know, things the Rebbe established in the name of others were was a clear association between them and uh, what the Rebbe established. But what was why Rashi? My thought was I never, I never heard it anywhere, I didn't hear the Rebbe mention it. But what was the main focus of Rashi? That it's coming, Anile Bossi Rashi says, I only come to explain Prutish Lemikra, the simple interpretation for a Ben le Lemikra. For a child of five years old and that was the rebbe always would emphasize that rashi always goes with the simplest approach he's not coming simplest approach he's not coming to explain jewish law he's not coming to explain philosophy he's not going to come to explain all the different chazal to explain the simple interpretation which distinguishes rashi from other commentaries now who most likely learned the rebbe the first rashis talk about the rebbe would always say that a mother is the one that's especially involved in the early stages of a child's education. So perhaps the Rebbe was honoring the mother that taught the Bencham which is the Rebbe, the beginnings of Rashi, and that's how he honored it. It's one of the most powerful lessons when you think about it. You know, it's one thing we remember a parent, someone who sacrificed their lives and shaped and helped to find us, but it's another when you, when you eternalize and mem- forever that connection. And after Tav chafei, every is literally, that the Rebbe Fabranged, without saying that he's honoring his mother, by learning the Rashi, by teaching it, by delving into it, and the Rebbe prepared, you could see, for hours, with all the different commentaries, and then coming with his own novel explanation of a Rashi, all honoring that mother, the mother that shaped the Rebbe. So that's the first lesson. A second lesson, of course, is in kibbud Aim, the respect, so actually someone wrote the following, we could learn a lot about respecting our, care, our parents from how the Rebbe treated his mother. Even though he was the Rebbe and very busy with his responsibilities for world Jewry, the Rebbe made time every day to honor his mother and spend time visiting her. Correct. Every day the Rebbe would walk to his mother's house and president in New York, probably earlier when she lived elsewhere. But that I also remember as a child. The Rebbe would walk up Kingston Avenue Late afternoon, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, that, approximately that time, he found out what her favorite kind of tea was. I'm continue reading. In other words, what kind of tea she, Rabbi Sachana's tea was, what her favorite was, and he would buy it and make it for her. We can read in some of the diaries Rabbi Sachana wrote that at times her life was difficult, especially when she and her husband were exiled to Almata and had to live in a one-room apartment with many problems and issues. She was a great woman and endured it all. May she and her husband be honored by Hashem. So that is lesson number two in the respect, in the respect of our parents. One of the even though it's a mitzvah from the Ten Commandments, Kabbodes Avicha VeSimcha, we know it's one of the harder mitzvahs to perform. For whatever reason, either we take our parents for granted, or we don't pay attention, or we don't really appreciate, or we're too close and that times affects us, we also are very deeply impacted by them. Whatever the reasons are, there are no real excuse. It's the mitzvah that says, yamecha, that this is a mitzvah that will cause you to have long life. So the lessons from the Rebbe, even though it's very pashat, you could say it's not a deep lesson, it's basic, basic decency, basic respect, but nevertheless, the Rebbe, with all his busy time, did that. There's no question that it has that tremendous lesson. So the honoring, the eternalizing, the respect, all important lessons. But the Rebbe Tzalchan herself, the Rebbe did make mention a number of times in talking about her own virtues, was in Mesidus Nefesh, how she went in exile with her husband. And not only that, prepared for him different herbs, because there was no ink. She knew that was his chayis, his life and sustenance, so she prepared the ink. That's why we see today the inks in different colors because they came from different herbs, that he would use to write commentary on Zoyar, on Tanya, and other, the, other writings that he did, that many of them were preserved, which she also was in her schus, because she made sure to preserve it and get it, and smuggle it out of Russia ultimately, and ultimately the Rebbe published it in the 60s, and this began another custom of the Rebbes that every Shabbos, Fabrenian, he would explain the, his father's commentary on Zoyar, So he has both his father and mother, both every Shabbos. That was the way the Rebbe honored them, among many other things, obviously. So we have stories that she writes in her diaries, the Rebbe Tzachana, above all, bringing up a child like that would become the Rebbe. Asher Yeladate is the expression of the Mishnah. Beloved is the one that gave birth to you. They gave birth to the Rebbe. So what the Rebbe is, Ambedas Tachten, on a very practical and natural level, is shaped by parents, especially his mother, as the Rebbe so often attributed. So what we learn from this, especially being that it's the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we learn that this is an opportunity, firstly on a very practical level, to honor our parents. In this case, our mother especially. This is all year round, but especially now when we are introspective and we do soul searching and accounting. It's the first thing to look at. And honoring parents, the Zayah says, for those that parents have passed on, that the mitzvah of Kibadav continues, av Aim continues even after they pass on, which is why we say Yisker and Yom Kippur and other holidays, and why we in general do different things in the merit of our parents, because the honor continues. So for whatever situation you're in, that's on a very basic level. But honoring parents is even deeper than just honoring parents. Why is it a mitzvah? Well, I mean, it's just, it seems to be common sense. And not only that, it's a mitzvah that, when you look at the Ten Commandments, Aser Sadibris, is the fifth mitzvah, so-called on the right tablet. There were two tablets, Shnei Luchas Abris, two tablets, stone tablets. And um, and Daav, the aim, is in the right tablet, meaning the first tablet. When it says in Svarim that the two tablets break down by Ben Adam Lamokim, Ben Adam Lachavere. Ben Adam are like things like Anoich HaShemelekechel, Yilach HaShabbos, and so on. And, but aim seems to be Ben Adam between person and person, not between a person and God. That's the second tablet, five. Not to steal, not to uh, kill. That's between human beings. Honoring parents seems to be something between human beings. And yet it's on that tablet. And one of the reasons for it is because it is really Be'n Adam It's not just a mitzvah of decency between parent and child, but it's between a child and God, between child and parent, between a child and God. Chzidis asked the question that we know that it's prohibited shituf to say that God is a partner in creation is a prohibition, comparable to idolatry. That's why we don't have any partners. Not just to say that, some, that, God is, that God is not part of the creation, but even a partnership. Now we say, Shlesha Shudfin ba'adam, there are three partners in the birth of a child father, mother, and God. Seems like a shituf. So, Answers this, no, that's not the case, because there's, it's clearly that God is the one that gives life, and without that, there would be no child. So the truth is, when we're honoring parents, we're actually honoring God who's working through the parents. So it's been Adam, La it's through the parents. And because the, we, the, we children don't belong to parents. Children belong to God. But God gave, made parents guardians and caretakers, gave them a gift to watch over. Which is why when it comes to a question, if, if your parents told you to do something that defies God, God forbid, you're not supposed to listen to them. Because Kibber v'eim is a subset of honoring God. And in that sense, you also understand why it says, Why it gives you a long life. Because by honoring your parents, which is honoring God who gives you life, it's Siba mesubav. it's a cause and effect. So what's the effect of um, honoring that which gives you life is long life. So belongs, therefore, So in truth, when we are honoring parents of Tishrei, connected, we're actually honoring God that works through these parents. Which also explains, which we learned, which we read in the Torah on Rosh Hashanah. Why would God even suggest such a thing? Because the child of Yitzhak didn't belong to Avram; it belongs to Hashem. Yes, it's, it's God's—it's Avram's biological child, but Hashem wanted to show him that your child is far greater than just your biological child. It's actually my child, and I'm working through you. So, therefore, the love and you can imagine the connection between Avram and Yitzchak became far more divine and eternal due to the Akedah. Because Avraham is ready to forego his biological connection and allow the divine connection to manifest, but that's an aside. So which is what Day, when days when when it, when it says Dirshu beseech God, call out to God when He's found. Karua Dirshu would be beseeching God. Dirshu call out. Uh, karua call out to Him Karuv when He's close to you. So, of course, the question is, God is always close to us. He's always to be found. He's always being Motsin, always Kodiv. But we don't necessarily sense it. Which means from God's perspective, of course, there's no change. But different cycles of the year, now in the 10 days of truth, it's compared to Kiruv HaMoyer El which means the source of light comes closer to the spark. So in a sense, the orbit of the soul, which is like a spark, near Hashem Nishmasodam, the soul of a human being is the flame of God. That flame, that, that spark, which is the source in the flame of God, gets closer to the flame. And what happens when a spark gets closer to a flame? They're drawn to each other. They melt into each other. So during this time, in Aser Shimei we have more power strength from our perspective to connect. So one of the big ways to connect is respecting the life that God gives each one of us through our parents. And that means that it's not just about your life, It's not just your life, but it's also a divine life that you were given a mission sent to this world. Your contract is renewed every day, and especially Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur time, an annual renewal with new energy and new possibilities and new opportunities to honor and ask yourself, what is my mission in this world? And the Rebbe is always a living example of that, that he not just was a mission, helped so many people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe more, millions of people, to discover their mission. Which is essentially what we're supposed to be doing, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, reconnecting, renewing, adding more to the mission for which we were sent to this world, which is to illuminate it with a light of Torah and mitzvahs, Neir mitzvah er, illuminate the soul of every human being we meet, the neir Hashem nishmas Adam, the soul, which is like a flame, And what a flame does is it illuminates and it warms its environment. And each of us have to find our unique way of doing this through our skills and our talents and our opportunities and the people we know. So in addition to our own introspection, it's also an introspection of are you fulfilling the mission for which you were sent to this world? So we have many of the lessons from Vav Tishrei. Now I've already segued into the Sarasimei Truve, which we are in now. And before we get to um, Yom Kippur, there's another thing that's timely, which was yesterday was, I don't know if we call it Lahavdil, but yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. 9-11 was definitely a historical and a life-changing event for those of us that remember it, but it changed many, many things in this world. We are here, Khsidis applied. So what is the chassidah applied? What can we learn from 9-11 20 years later? And we're living through our own disruption now. Buildings crumbling back 20 years ago. We've had Surfside, we've had Miron, tragically. And we've had internally, psychologically, emotionally during COVID and the world in general, many disruptions of structures crumbling, physical structures, psychological structures, different things we depend on, the infrastructure, disruptions and upheavals. So the first thing that comes to mind without even thinking much when you learn Chassidus and Kabbalah based, is that the concept of that's an expression used in Halacha, in Gemara, where you talk about if somebody on Shabbish you're not allowed to do certain things, one of the things you're not supposed to build, you're not supposed to destroy. But is a question. Let's say you destroy something in order to build. Is that considered a full Malacha or not? Without going into the halachic aspects of it, the legal aspects, but from this, Kabbalah and Chassidus elaborate on the world that you may be familiar with called Toihu, that in the cosmic order, say there's part of the process, how things were created. Because on one hand, everything is created by God, and there's therefore an inherent intrinsic unity that connects everything. On the other hand, for there to be existence and independent consciousness, God had to conceal himself, which is called the Tzimtzum. The Tzimtzum concealed the divine presence. Part of the concealment also leads to a world called Tayu, in the language of Kabbalah and a world that's imbalanced, incongruous, incongruous. So a world that is misaligned, where the energies and containers cannot function, coexist with each other, and ultimately creating what is called the Shvidr the shattering of the containers, It's not physical shattering, it's conceptual. But we can relate to it in context on a personal psychological level when you have something that overwhelms you, where in a sense you burst out, either do shock, anger, or other forms of overwhelming situations that you're not in a balanced and harmonious state. So when things are balanced and harmony, essentially your energies are residing in their containers in a peaceful way. That's called tikkun. Tikkun is the repair of Tayu. So Tayu is the sayser, the structure built, the being destroyed, but not as an end in itself, in order to be repaired in tikkun. So in life, when things are not aligned, either due to fear, or trauma, or abuse, or just in general, a world that has ex- experienced existential dissonance, existential loneliness, that dissonance, and every form of dissonance, is a form of Tayu in our life, sayser. Something crumbles, something is not working properly. But we should never see that as an end in itself. That leads toward rebuilding something greater. So that's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear about 9-11. So true, New York rebuilt, the United States rebuilt. There hasn't been another terrorist attack on that scale, at least in this country, the mainland USA. And many things have been improved. But look, we still have plenty of things crumbling especially on a deeper level when you look at the political infrastructure, the polarization, the different uh, corruption that we're finding, where who can you trust? The media can't be trusted. I mean, you see many structures crumbling. So we need to learn, even though it's 20 years later, that there's plenty more to repair. And it will be repaired, because that's the whole point of when something breaks, it's only there to reveal to you that something isn't working. Imagine something's broken, but you think it's working. So there's the yisbaru v'yislab noha the clarity we receive when something cracks, when something crumbles. Now obviously it should happen with the least amount of pain and aggravation and definitely no death and grief, as we have unfortunately seen. But the very concept of something crumbling is a crack in order to let the light in. It's a crack in the egg in order for a new life to emerge. So when we look at life that way, we can learn many, many lessons, including as we stand today in 2021, 20 years from 9-11. And of course fitting, this can smoothly go right into Yom Kippur, that's what Yom Kippur is all about. In essence, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year because something broke, something crumbled, something cracked and it was rebuilt even stronger than it was in the first place. And not just psychologically, emotionally and spiritually, also physically, the tablets were shattered. The first, the tablets were shattered by Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, 40 days after he received the Torah, or 39 days, comes down and sees that the Jewish people, 39 days they built the golden calf, comes down on the 40th day and sees what happened. The golden calf is another dissonance, another result of of the shattering of the containers. It would not be possible if the divine consciousness and presence was everywhere and revealed. So all that's the result, so what does Moshe do? He responds to a a shattering with a shattering. Not out of anger, not out of control, but very deliberately shatters the contract, the marriage contract between the God and the Jewish people. The Ksuba, as Rashi says, which were the the tablets that he was delivering to them. And then he could say to Hashem, look, that they should not have false gods. They heard it and they accepted it, but they didn't sign the contract, so to speak. They didn't receive the tablets. Now, this wasn't a cute way out. Obviously, the people who did it were accountable and needed to be punished and so on for that grave sin, deliberate sin. But Moshe knew that he did not want it to end there, the relationship, as much as a betrayal as it was. So Moshe marches back up on the mountain after shattering the tablets and beseeches God and begs of God for forgiveness. He spends another 40 days after those first 40 days, comes down to not successful. It was called the days of wrath, days of where he did not receive what he had asked for, the forgiveness. So he goes back again, does not give up. And now Rishchei There the two opinions, the first day of is the second day, goes back up on the mountain, stays another 40 days, including the days we are right now in. The whole month of Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Aser and when does the 40th day end? The third period of 40 days, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, comes down on the mountain successful, which is why after Kol Nidre, we will say three times that God says, I have forgiven as you have spoken. I have forgiven them as you have spoken. That is the secret to Yom Kippur, the birth of hope, the birth of forgiveness. A man stood up to God and would not take no for an answer. You know the tremendous lessons that we can learn from that? In resilience, in hope, in courage, and never giving up, even when something was seriously broken. So if you talk about an example of brokenness that leads to growth, not just growth, to greater growth, to an eternal one, as, the, as Halacha states, the Talmud states, ir, a contract. is a contract between two people or between two, between two entities. What happens if somebody challenges the contract? They appeal, and they say, this contract is not legal or something was forged, or, or some other flaw in the contract. So it says shtar yasa A shtar that was challenged and upheld can never be challenged again, which we find also in the secular court of law. You can appeal once, twice, three times, but comes a point, the Supreme Court, you can't appeal any longer. And on the contrary, that makes it stronger because now it's, it's forever. This is the final contract. It can never be appealed. That could only have been possible because it was challenged. Same thing with human beings. As long as we're not challenged, we can't know how strong you are. When something challenges us, and we withstand the challenge, and we become stronger and grow, that is indestructible. So Yom Kippur created indestructibility. That is why we will celebrate Simcha's with such unbridled joy, because we're celebrating the indestructibility. On Yom Kippur, we'll talk about this later in other programs. Yom Kippur, we experience it through humility, through quiet, through silence. Because it did come with a price. What's the price? We went through a difficult moment. But ultimately, it's a great celebration because we've received this forgiveness. And Yom Kippur, therefore, becomes Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Atonement. The day that you're capable, no matter what happened, to reconnect to a deeper place, That's what love, betrayal, and reconciliation brings a deeper love, a deeper connection, and this time, indestructible. So this is the connection to um, Yom Kippur in general. Now, A lot of questions came in about Yom Kippur, um, both covering Yom Kippur in general, laws and customs, prayers. So I'll try to cover at least some of them. Many, many, I mean... (laughs) I would say over 100 questions came in. I don't think I can cover 100 questions, but I'll do my best and let's begin. Well, we've already begun, but let's go into the more specific questions about Yom Kippur. In most countries in the world, when someone is accused of wrongdoing and has to appear in court, they are given a lawyer to help defend them. On the high holidays, and especially Yom Kippur, who serves as our lawyer to help us at the heavenly court. So first of all, we have Moshe Rabbeinu. The Moshe Rabbeinu that served as our lawyer, the best possible lawyer, look what he accomplished. Now this didn't happen only once, it happened once physically, but technically speaking, it happens, spiritually speaking I should say, it happens every year. So we have Moshe Rabbeinu in heaven, we have in addition to Moshe, as we invoke during the prayers, especially Yom Kippur, we invoke all the greats, our patriarchs, different prophets, who all prayed and continue to pray for us. When we read the Akedus Yitzchak, Rosh Hashanah, and we, of course, read it as well, every day on Yom Kippur included, we are invoking Avraham Avinu. Not just what he did then, in honor of what he did, but what he's constantly doing. So we have many, many attorneys and lawyers up there in heaven defending and protecting us. We, of course, have Malach Machal. He's the general advocate for the Jewish people. So I would not be concerned. I would be more concerned about what we're doing down on earth because we ultimately, it's the person who's standing standing before God and before the heavenly court that needs to do what they have to do. When we do what we have to do, all these lawyers will have far easier time to defend and protect and, uh, and present our case. So we have to focus on what we need to be doing. But it's a very good question, and it's a partnership in that sense. Okay. You have a lawyer that represents you, but if you do things that go against what the lawyer is trying to do for you, you could end up causing more trouble. Now, let's talk of the positive. We have plenty of time now. We're finishing the sixth of Tishrei. We have a few more days to Yom Kippur to do whatever we can to mend, to correct, to repair, to ask for forgiveness offer forgiveness, respond with forgiveness to those that ask of us, both between human beings, between us and God. That's the work we do, and that's why we're given not just one day, we're given a month of Elul, a whole full month, then we're given another ten days or nine days, and then finally Yom Kippur comes. So there's a whole preparation, and all of that is all meant to help us acc- acclimate ourselves and, and uh, internalize this, this relationship we have with God. In a more personal, intimate, and internal fashion. Okay. Praying via Zoom. Okay. Can we follow Yom Kippur service via Zoom? My wife and I were quarantined last Yom Kippur, and this Yom Kippur we most likely will not go to synagogue as well. We really wanted want to go to shul, but could but can't. So. Last year we watched a Kol Nidre stream on Zoom from a, from a Reformed synagogue, temple. Do you think Hashem will be upset at us for using the computer on the holiday? Or will he understand that under the circumstances we did the best we could? As you know, I read all types of questions and many, many different people listen to this program of all walks of life. I'm just stating that because very often the questions are more related to um, certain understanding of Chassidus because it is applied. But these are real questions that people have. So that's, I'm just explaining the reading of it. So number one is, and I hope you're listening, but I'm saying this to everyone, obviously. We do have halachas, Jewish law, that tells us how best to celebrate Yom Kippur, to honor Yom Kippur. And one of the things you don't want to do is in speaking to God and trying to connect to God to do something that God asks us not to do. So to use any electronics or to use any type of work Like when someone would say, let me drive to synagogue on Yom Kippur. It's very far from my home. And the answer is, better pray at home. God is with you at home. Is a synagogue more conducive? Yes. But there are times when God doesn't want us to go to synagogue. So even though from a point of view of technically you could say, I don't want to say the word entertainment because it's not entertainment. Technically you can watch something. But Yom Kippur is a time to be not using any type of electronics or any type of work. And there's a reason for it. It's not just some uh, blind law like a chukah that's a super rational law. The reason for it is because on holy days like Shabbos and especially Shabbos, Shabbos Ein, the Shabbos of all Shabboses, which is Yom Kippur, we want to have a pure connection. You know, it's like, uh, God forbid, if uh, instead of a mother nurturing her child, she would send a machine to do so, a virtual mother. We want to have the most pur- pure connection. Any type of work is considered an external use of something. There's a time for it. Six days of the week, God says, work. And use the world and use the work that you do to connect with me. But then there's that day where you are intimate with God, especially Yom Kippur. There's nothing else. You don't want to have any machines. You don't want to have any technical things. You don't want to be creating anything. Even the spark that turns on a, 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 an electronic uh, device whether it's a television or it's a mobile phone. Now, someone can ask the question, what happens if it's on already before Yom Kippur? Is it in the spirit? I would say, halachically, you probably can say that you didn't, you didn't technically um, do, any, do a work work on Yom Kippur, but is it in the spirit of Yom Kippur? I would strongly advise, this would be my suggestion, that you and your wife and anyone else in this type of quarantine situation, before Yom Kippur, Prepare. Take a book or two, find some prayers that speak to you in English. I have my book, 60 Days. It's not a, a, you could call it a plug, perhaps, but it's also actually valuable, a lot of people use it. We actually decipher the prayers, decipher the meaning of Yom Kippur, and spend time together. It's actually a beautiful thing to do. If you can go to synagogue, that's one thing, if you can't, so spend time together, pray together, discuss it together, and you could have a, a most beautiful Yom Kippur, perhaps even unprecedented, because you really personalize it that way. When you go to synagogue, sometimes you have to catch up with everyone else. Even though in synagogue too, I always recommend follow your own speaking to God, you don't have to follow everybody else. You know, focus on certain prayers. You can follow, but also have your own internal personal prayers. But especially when you're home, there's so many opportunities. That's what I would advise. And we don't always need stimulation from outside. Sometimes God wants us to find the stimulation from within. We'll talk about it some more bit later regarding intimacy on Yom Kippur. But it's like, why if Shabbos is connected, for instance, with music, Zimra, Shira, Zimra, why don't we play instruments? Instruments will make things a lot livelier because there's a time of music that we generate through external things and there's a music that we generate from our soul. Our soul also has song and music. And that's why on Shabbos, create your own song, sing, dance in a personal way without any external stimulation of instruments. And a similar idea with Yom Kippur. Okay. In general, I don't like to use the words God is upset or not upset. God understands clearly people's intentions. I'm just trying to clarify. could be not familiar with everything I've said, so I don't want to use the word whether God is upset. I wouldn't do it because, God, because I, would not, I, w- I would not use Zoom not because God gets upset, but because there's a reason for it. Not about a personal anger or anything. God is giving us a gift, Yom Kippur, and I would embrace it as such. Okay, next question. Golden calf. What is the, what's the connection between Yom Kippur and the golden calf? Yom Kippur represents forgiveness, but God never forgave those who made the golden calf. They all died in the desert and were not allowed to enter Israel. So the general explanation I gave, because it wasn't just the people who actually built the golden calf. Yes, 3,000 people were killed. And it's true overall, all the Jews except Yeshua and Caleb went into Israel. But that wasn't just because of the golden calf. It was primarily because of the sin of the scouts. They refused to want to go to Israel. So God gave them what they asked for. But that's another discussion. And actually, salachtikid varecha, there's a discussion in commentaries, is that referred to Yom Kippur, or is it referred to the Meraglin? So clearly, there's a connection between the two. But overall, it, 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 the, the idea of the golden calf was a collective sin. And everybody, in many ways, was, was responsible. The women actually did not contribute their jewelry. So in a way, they're more absolved. But nevertheless, it was a collective sin. So there were those that were directly punished. And remember, in Judaism, punishment is not tit-for-tat. It's not because you did this, okay, you're punished. It's cause and effect. Once you sever your connection, some people cannot continue to live in this world because they made that severing. Now you'll say, when didn't I say the Yom Kippur gives us hope and courage and forgiveness? So first of all, they also are forgiven, but sometimes you have to be forgiven through a particular way of cleansing the person. That's number one. Number two, the general people were forgiven. And overall, God has said to the Moshe Rabbeinu, I don't want a connection with these people altogether. That was definitely forgiven because the relationship remains. And maybe above all, all the generations, since then, we have Yom Kippur. That opportunity to be forgiven and to reconnect. So it's true at the time, there were those that needed certain, certain um, being rep- reprimanded or punished. Again, I don't like the word punish, but cause and effect. It's like you put your hand in fire, so the, fire, the hand gets burned. So they, they put their hand in fire, and they, there were repercussions. There were, implica- there were um, implications and repercussions from that. But still, Yom Kippur remains, Yom Kippur, Yachos Bashana, Yom despite all that. So therefore, there's forgiveness sometimes through punishment, forgiveness without punishment, and forgiveness in the general sense of what Yom Kippur represents. Next question. Why was, was, why was only the Kohen Gadol allowed to enter the Kodesh kadoshim, and only Anyam Kippur? Why are we regular people not allowed to know what goes on in there? When the Mashiach comes, will it be run the same way in the Kodesh kadoshim, or will the Kohen Gadol at least take some video inside there and post it to social media so we can all see? Okay. A little um. A little uh, humor, tongue in cheek, but let's answer the question. First of all, going into the Kurdish we or not going is not due to any uh, negative reasons. It's only because of its power. So it's not about knowing what's going on in there. We do know what went on in there, and we actually recite it in the Aveda, in the prayer on Yom Kippur Day, Musaf, the long discussion in detail, in detail of details based on the Gemara, based on Madrashim, exactly what went on, what the Kohen Gadol did, and how he served, and we know the measurements of the Holy of Holies, and the Ark that was in there, and what was inside the Ark. There's probably, <laughs> I don't say more, but there's it's probably more documented than many other things we know about. So to say we don't know what's going on, we know very well what's going on in there. What the real reason is because the Kodesh Kedoshim, as its name states, the Holy of Holies, what does that mean? Let's define holy of holies. Holy of holies means it's a place where there are no veils. There are no shrouds. There are no simsumum, concealments. The divine presence is shining without any filters, unfiltered. Can a person be able to go in there and survive that? It's like looking at the sun without shades. That's just an example. Here it's infinitely more than just the sun. So it wasn't a matter of you're not allowed to go in there or we cover it up because it's off limits. On the contrary, because the world is not refined enough, and we are not, we can't enter a place like that. Think of it like a piece of dust on your finger is meaningless. It is insignificant. A piece of dust on your eyeball is quite irritating. Kedush Kadashim is like the eyeball, even more than the eyeball. So it's extremely sensitive, and you need to be able to enter there in a pure form. So just like when you sterilize during surgery because the inner organs are opened up, which makes them much more vulnerable to infection and bacteria and so on, the Holy of Holies is the most raw, naked place in a beautiful way, like, like, like intimacy. So no one belongs in there. It's a private place between God and when he chooses to connect. And when does he choose to connect? In time of Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem spoke to Moshe between the two rods of the ark. And once a year, Achaz Bashan, a short period of time, the Kohen Gadol, after seven days of preparation and cleansing and tshuva and staying away from everything material, is ready to enter this Holy of Holies. And if he had a blemish, he would not be able to survive. So the Holy of Holies represents one place on earth where heaven meets earth in the purest form. So Yom Kippur is like the Holy of Holies in, in time. The space is the Holy of Holies in space, in the Beis HaMikdash, and the Kohen God is the Holy of Holies within the human race, within the Jewish people. So the Yechidah, Chassidah says, the Yechidah Nefesh, the Yechida of the collective Yachidah, the deepest part of the soul, enters Yechida B'mokim, the, the, the deepest part in space, on Yechida B'sman, the deepest part in time. Now, this was during the Beis HaMikdash. Today, the Rebbe explains, zeo takanosan, zui takanosan." Like we said before, seso ha Sometimes something breaks in order to give us greater opportunity. Today, each of us is like a Kayin Gadol on Yom Kippur. Which is why we say the entire service, we, repeat, we review and revisit and recreate the events. And then we say, just as the Kayin Gadol prayed for the people in that Holy of Holies, so too should our prayers have that same power. So we all have a Yechida Sheba Nefesh on a microcosmic level. That Yechida shines on Yom Kippur, only on Yom Kippur. So there's the five dimensions of the soul, Nefesh Ruh Neshama Chai Yechidah. During the weekdays of the year, we access the three conscious dimensions, Nefesh ruach, Neshama, which is essentially Chabad, Chagas, Nihim, which is the cognitive and the emotional faculties, and the, the, cogn- the cognitive, emotional, and behavioral faculties, on Shabbos and Yom Tev, we access the fourth Yichayi, transcendence. That's why there's Musaf, And once a year we have five prayers, Yom Kippur. Ne'ilah is the fifth prayer, Yechida. We can access transcendence of transcendence, that oneness. the oneness that connects with Yachid, the oneness of the divine in the unfiltered, without any shrouds, concealments, and coverings, and any impediments. Now in Yom Kippur itself, obviously, Ne'ilah is the Yom Kippur within Yom Kippur, so to speak. So the whole Yom Kippur is Yechidah, but the real place, you know, Ne'ilah, which is that last prayer when all the gates are open, where everything is possible. So that's the brief answer. When Mashiach comes, now the Kareem Shkodesh will not just be open. There will be, the rest of the world will be refined, so we'll be able to access and draw from that energy, which brings me to another point. The fact that we don't enter the Holy of Holies doesn't mean we don't benefit from it. That exactly is the point. Just like you make Havdolah between Shabbos and the weekdays, the separation actually draws the holiness of Shabbos into the weekdays. So, Havdolah separation is not always a negative. Like the Vayavdol, there's a Havdolah, there's a Parikhus, a curtain between Kedesh Kadashim, the Holy of Holies, and Kedesh and the Holy. That curtain, by recognizing and respecting the Holy of Holies, that alone allows us to draw from it. So, yeah. Who cleaned the Holy of Holies? Gemach Sima Was there a cleaning lady that got to enter the Kodesh Kodashim at certain intervals during the year to clean and mop up? Did this cleaner ever publicly divulge what was inside there? So again, what was inside there we know. We don't need anyone to tell us. As an aside, since you're asking the question, yes, there's the end of Erevin, talks about the cleaning and repairs in the Beis HaMikdash, also in the areas where you are not allowed to enter. So there's a whole method. The Rambam cites it in Halakha, in up Beis Abkhir, the end of chapter 7. It says that there was something above the Kedesh Kedoshim that was correspondent to it, and they were let down inside with a box. If they couldn't do it that way, the people who repaired or had to assess the repairs or cleaning, they would, then they were allowed to go through, uh, through the door, through the entry passageway. It talks about who's allowed to do it, who cleans and who repairs. So you can look it up in those places. It's from Erevan again, the end of Erevan, I believe it's um, uh, Kufay Aleph 105a and Rambam Hechaz Beis Abkhira at the end of chapter seven. Okay. Throw, okay now we're gonna talk about um Sel Azazel. On Yom Kippur there was a mitzvah to take a goat and throw it off a cliff. How does throwing a goat off a cliff to its death atone for our sins? Can I lie, cheat, and steal all year and then throw a goat over the Brooklyn Bridge and magically be forgiven by God? So the answer to the question is no, absolutely not. This is not some magical thing. Just like a carbon is brought and there were two goats, one was brought as an offering and one was thrown off the, the, a cliff. There's basically, the God created animals for a reason because it could sound very cruel. And the truth is even carbonis, even the slaughter of an animal sounds cruel. And we're doing it for what? For selfish reasons, atonement. So here's where the Ramban says that number one, that every time a carbon was brought, the person who was, it was atoning for had to envision as if it was happening to him. It wasn't just, oh, okay, we'll kill, kill an animal. And it's only in God's compassion and mercy allows it to be so-called transferred over to an animal of yours. And most importantly, the animal was created, like everything in this world, for a purpose. Not to be killed but because we live in a symbiotic world and everything from from mineral, inanimate mineral, to the vegetation, to animal, to human being are all interconnected. We all benefit from each other. So if you think of it that way in a holy way, not because we're going to kill anything. The idea that there are predators and prey, for example, nobody doesn't bother anyone, even though it's painful to see and bloody. But if there was no predators and prey, the world would not exist. If you look at it in nature, the prey are always multiplying much more in larger numbers than the predators do. And there are different experiments in Yellowstone Park and other places where predators were removed and their potential prey multiplied in such numbers, they destroyed the entire region. So it's a balance in this world, more vegetation than there are animals. If animals did not eat vegetation, vegetation would destroy the world, and so on and so forth. The idea of bringing an offering, which may be hard to wrap your head around the first time, is not our idea. It's a divine part of the system. Where God said, I'm creating particularly these and these creatures, not for you to kill them, for you to elevate yourself and that animal to a higher purpose. So why throwing down from a cliff, which sounds pretty gruesome? Because when sometimes in order to to heal something, looks like you need deep surgery, surgery has to be more a little more intensive more intrusive so there's the concept of that as well so it covers so to speak even the most grotesque or the disturbing sins could have been done a different way god can do it many different ways that's how we decided to do it and how is the goat determined through a girdle which is why put purim, purim and yom kippur have a certain connection the girl they threw lots which goat would be which because only god would decide we don't decide we can't make such a decision which goat should be offered and which goat should be thrown down the cliff. So the sel zozel, that's, which is the, this goat that we're talking about, it's actually an elevation. Again, it may sound weird the first time, but when you think about it, that it's not our doing, it's part of the process. It's no different than any type of crack or break, as we've discussed before, that brings to something greater. A volcano, an earthquake, if human beings are there, it's, it can be a, a big tragedy. But if they're not there, they actually help keep the balance of this world in place. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, if Mashiach comes right before Yom Kippur, wouldn't there be a seven-day feast dedicated, dedicating the new third base Amikdash? Would that offset fasting in Yom Kippur? I sure hope so, because I love my morning coffee and don't like missing it on Yom Kippur. Mashiach now. By the way, we are if we are allowed to eat on Yom Kippur, maybe it should be... Cool. Okay, I'm not going to read the This is a little childish joke here. Okay. Um, maybe it should be called Yom Kippur or Yomikippur. Just reading because that's what the person wrote. Well, let on a serious note. The Gemara does say during the time of the Beit Bais Rishon, when they were the Chanukah Sabais, they dedicated the first temple. So yes, they ate and drank and celebrated on Yom Kippur. The Rebbe brings this and says when Mashiach comes, that indeed will be the case. The question is, after Chanukah, will there be a Yom Kippur next year? Will there be fasting? So remember, there is a stage in Mashiach's coming where there'll be the future world that will has no eating and no drinking, not just on Yom Kippur, the whole year round, as the Rebbe explains, because the body will not need food for its sustenance. So there may be a meal, even though there's some say the meal will be in the first stage, the first kufa, and then no more food and drink will be in the second, but the Rebbe explains in Shuvah Sibriyurim, now printed in volume 2 in the Igris Kodesh of the Rebbe, that it means that even according to those opinions that the meal will happen when there's no eating and no drinking, that eating and drinking will not be necessary for our sustenance. So, using that concept, when neshama zunis minaguf, the neshama will be fed, be nourished by the body, instead of the body being nourished by the neshama as it is today. We will not eat and eat and drink altogether. So Yom Kippur would be included in that, but it's a longer discussion. How will Yom Kippur be distinguished from the rest of the year when Mashiach comes? But that I'll leave for another time. I see time is tight. Let's continue here. Forgiveness via social media. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, On Erev Kipper, Kippur, it is customary to ask friends and acquaintances for forgiveness in case we did anything wrong to them in the past year. Is it acceptable to accomplish this via social media with a blanket statement such as, I forgive everyone for anything wrong they did to me, and I hope everyone forgives me too? Or do we need to t- reach out individually to all our friends and neighbors and ask? So I would say the latter The first thing, the first question is, can I call you and ask for forgiveness instead of meeting you face-to-face? The answer is, of course, because not always you can meet somebody. Time may not allow it, or they may be in a different part of the world. So social media is a perfectly acceptable way. But blanket, to make like a, you know, some type of conference call or to, like you said, social media, I mean, you can do it as a nice gesture, but I still believe that every person should be contacted. You wanna do it through text, through social media, by all means. Forgiveness doesn't say that forgiveness necessarily has to be face to face, even though in the halacha it seems that way. But you could say because there wasn't other opportunities back then. Obviously, it's maybe optimal if you could meet someone. It's much more natural, more sincere in a sense. You're not just making a call or doing it on social media. But the, but but basically, the halacha is fulfilled. But it has to be one on one, individually. If that's a blanket statement. Is I would not say musters uh, that has that muster. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, if we are taught that everything is by divine providence and not even a leaf in the forest can overturn, unless it's God's will, then why are we we responsible to ask forgiveness for sins in Yom Kippur if all of our actions are predetermined? If certain actions are sins, maybe Hashem needs to be the one asking for forgiveness if He programmed us in advance to do it. P.S. It is also by divine providence that I wish you a sweet new year. So thank you. Well, this goes back to the general answer, divine providence and, our, and free will. Divine providence, like a leaf, or even the way you walk somewhere or do something, whether you'll be tall or short, or brown eyes or blue eyes, that's not up to us. But right or wrong is up to us. So no, God does not make us sin. We choose to do so. So therefore, we have to choose to ask for forgiveness. Now, there is a concept of that God in general made a plot, a conspiracy, that set Adam and Chava up by giving them the tree of knowledge and sending the serpent, and making it almost like causing them to sin. But that's another discussion, and is not still does not take away free will, as the Rambam, Maimonides says, is a foundation, a, a core foundation. They say Chazuk, a strong foundation, and a fundamental principle in all of Judaism. It takes away everything if we have no free will. So forgiveness is that goes directly connected with that. Kaparas, what are the origins of the Kaparas ritual? So, firstly, it should be mentioned that in Shulchanar, the Beis actually dismisses it. However, the Ramah and the meaning by most iden is to do Kaparas with a chicken. Some do it with money, some do it other ways. It comes from the word Kapara, and it's connected, its origins are originated, as it says in Sfarim, from actually the Sel Azazel that we spoke about, the offering. Well, the Sel Azazel, or the Sel that's brought as an offering, Offerings are brought for kapara, for, uh, for atonement. So today we don't have a beis So one of the ways we do it is through kaparas, using a chicken, a hen, or a rooster, or uh, for, for male, female, and all the different customs involved in it. So that is a brief answer for it. And again, the explanation is not killing a chicken. It's because how God created the world and why he created different things for different purposes. Lekach. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, what is the reason the Rebbe gave out honey cake before Yom Kippur? And how can we maintain this tradition after Gimel Tammuz? So first of all, lekach is not originated by the Rebbe. It's a custom that goes back years. This I did not look up what the source is. But basically, lekach is coming from lekach Teiv. It's a Pesach that we give lekach, which is honey cake, which is sweet, like the honey that we dip the apple in honey, Rosh Hashanah. And its purpose is to have a sweet year. It's symbolic of sweetness. It manifests sweetness. The Rebbe did this custom for all the years. Later years, because of the large crowds, the Rebbe would give out a honey cake to each individual, but in later years, because of large crowds, the Rebbe gave it to either to, 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 to a group of people who would give it out, or he stopped the custom, at least on an individual basis. How do we maintain, and of course, our Rebbe giving lekka has an additional element of the Rebbe's blessing for the new year. We maintain it by giving it to your children, by asking from your parents, by asking friends. We can maintain this minute very easily. We do it every year of Yom Kippur. That's the custom. As far as the Rebbe goes, there are things that today have to be more spiritual, and there are things that, like just like how do you dance in Chastair with the Rebbe, or hear Shofar, we have to do it how we do it on earth. But the spiritual connection remains. I'm, no, I'm sure a Rebbe never forsakes his flock. So in some way he's being mamshach; he's drawing down to us blessings, sweet blessings, not in the physical form of lekach. Or maybe you can say that anytime you give lekach to someone, you're a shliach of the Rebbe, as he gave lekach all those years. Like we say malach mechol, he throws candies to the children when they go. I'm when you lead them into the first time to go to school. So parents are their shliach; they throw the candies, but it's malach mechol that is really the source of it, as the Rebbe explains in the in the sichet why do we wear a white tunic, a Kitla and Yom Kippur? Is there a belief that we wear white, that if we wear white, God will think we are angels and clean, of, and, clean of, and clean of sin and give us a happy new year? First of all, you can't fool God. Just putting on a white garment doesn't mean your sins are gone. Well, Allah says one of the reasons for a white garment is actually to humble us, reminds us of the tachrichim, which is the white garments that when a person after 120 years is dressed in as they return their sold to their maker. However, there are other aspects. The whiteness, yes, re- represents the big day love on the white garments of the Koyan Godl and the Beis HaMikdash. And it does say, like we're also that because of Yom Kippur, not in any way, we actually elevate to a level of, of purity. And white represents purity. So though we have to do our work, but the whiteness reminds us that we need to yalbinu, that we should, and that our sins should be cleansed from, from being soiled to becoming pure white. So it's symbolic of that as well. Why do we fast over 25 hours of Yom Kippur when the day is only 24 hours? So halakhically, it's 24 hours. Usually, it's going to come out more than that because simply when you count from the time of before candlelighting till the time after the Shkia is already 25 hours. Um, but, uh, but there's also the delman that some have the custom to fast 26 hours. Fasting is a process of cleansing, of spiritual cleansing. So there are different levels of one can do it. Obviously, if a person cannot, so the, 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 the Yom Kippur is from the, technically from candlelighting till, or a little before candlelighting till after the Shkia, till after where the fast ends. But if a person can, it has some additional power to cleanse another hour or the mount that Yudke Vovke, which invokes God's uh, tetragrammaton the holy name of the four letters. That's briefly. Why are marital relations forbidden in Yom Kippur? Prudavu is a mitzvah. Is not it important to do many mitzvahs in Yom Kippur to make God happy so he can forgive? Well, the most important reason is just to add the question before I give the most important. A bigger question is Yom Kippur is a day of intimacy. Consider the day when we're intimate with God. So what better time to be intimate? But that's exactly the point. When Yom Kippur is the source of all intimacy, the intimacy between husband and wife, the sacred intimacy is rooted in and evolves from our relationship with God. God created the human being male and female in the divine image. Let's not forget the divine image. So once a year, the male and female connect to that divine image. And by personal physical intimacy, would distract us from that. So it's like it says says in Zohar that the man fell every day, except Shabbos. There was no man, the bread from heaven. But on Shabbos, it was manufactured, it was produced. Because man comes from a very high level, like Shabbos. So you don't collect it on Shabbos, you don't act on it on Shabbos, but it's produced there. Yom Kippur produces the concept of intimacy. And there it's between you and God. It's like, like a newborn child connecting with God. Then from there we get the power of intimacy that husband and wife in, in the sacred way and according to Allah in the proper time in the proper way can draw from that. Like I mentioned before that even though Shabbos is a day of music and song, but we don't play it with instruments. It comes internal. So there are times where the intimacy is on that spiritual level with the divine and we don't mix the two. Even though the physical intimacy evolves from that, but at the time right now, it's like when you're davening, you don't sit with your wife or your spouse. Why not? Besides the idea of mechitza and all of that. Because davening, you're talking to God. And it's not a compromise. That actually will enhance your relationship with your spouse. Okay, I was wondering whether I should read this question. You know what, I'll read it. It's a little... Dear Rabbi Jacobson, is using a caffeine suppository on Yom Kippur cheating? Isn't the purpose of fasting to have some discomfort? And if ingesting, ingesting a suppository in, is not considered eating, according to Aloha, what would stop people from ingesting tray via pork suppositories? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of this uh, custom. It's Besides the spirit of, of, of Yom Kippur, if it's a medical emergency, is one thing. Um, besides the spirit, the whole thing, I mean, it doesn't sound like a right thing to do. So I don't know how much to comment on it. It's not about the discomfort. It's about, in general, keeping to the spirit of Yom Kippur, your fast, and that's that. You don't need to have all these different types of tricks. How luckily is it allowed? You could ask your local rabbi for that. But that would be my response. And the same thing with ingesting tray via pork. It's not about just eating it. It's in having it in your system, which is also part of the question whether you can do it the other ways so someone can have IV. Again, emergency is an emergency, a dangerous piqoch uh, nefesh. But if it's not an emergency, I don't think hooking up to IV over Yom Kippur and feeling completely filled is really Yom Kippur dick, besides the halacha questions involved. Why is al said in the plural, plural? Hello, Rabbi, I have a question about the al confession prayer Yom Kippur. Why is it written in plural as in, as if, as in we have sinned instead of I have sinned? Are we confessing as a group instead of individuality? In some ways it seems unfair. If we come to God as a group, can I be blamed of sins others did but I didn't do? Well, there's a few reasons given for this. First of all, yes, the Jewish people are one people and one one person's sin affects everyone else. So there's a collective element. Not that we're guilty for someone else's sin. It affects us. So when we're saying al-chet, it's not just confession, it's also healing. That's number one. Number two, it is also in a way to not point at a finger at any individual. When you say it collectively, we, it takes away some of the individual negativity that may be associated with it. Even though Achet should not lead to guilt or shame. It should lead to repair. It's always about not being demoralized. You have to be accountable. So, those that are accountable have to take it to heart. But still, there's an element of like tzniyas and modesty or you say a we. Um, a third point I would make it says about Darizal. His students ask, Why did Darizal say Akhet? He was a holy man, sadik, not capable of any of those sins. So, the answer given is because he's a neshama klo, this it's a collective soul. He's saying it for all the people. And secondly, that means he also has it subtly within himself. In the famous story with the Mittler Rebbe, that when you give someone advice, you have to have subtly something within yourself. Subtle, subtle. So there's a we element in that sense that just that adds to the whole discussion about the we. There may be more reasons, but that's briefly what I would say to this question. Jonah. Hello, Rabbi. Why do we read the book of Jonah on Yom Kippur? Is it because the white... Whale spitting out Jonah after trying to eat him is a reminder we are supposed to fast and not eat. <laughs> that I never heard before. I don't know if that's the case. Well, the ostensible reason is when you read the end of Jonah, the whole thing is about Shuva. Jonah was sent on a mission to go get the city of Tarshish to do shuva. He then escaped. He ran away from the mission. One of the reasons given is because he didn't want to embarrass the Jewish people who may not atone or not, may not repent. But at the end of the day, he does have to go fulfill the mission. And then the end of the story, we read the end of Yonah, you see what's added there, all about the forgiveness and, and uh, about uh, compassion and uh, connected to the 13 attributes of compassion. The deeper reasons given is that Yonah is the story of the neshama coming down to a body. Where the ship is on the raging seas is the soul within a body and we are responsible for our behavior. As Yönes, as once the, once the sea became stormy, so they were looking, what, what was the reason for it? They threw lots, and Jonas said, it's because of me. So everybody's affected because of me, so it, it reminds us of our own responsibilities and the, needs, and the need to atone. And, um, and finally, as far as the whale goes, yes, there are some that say the, the, the whale spitting out, the, swallowing Yonah, And spitting him out also represents a form of a sin, then being saved and then being spit out and beginning your mission again anew. Those are the brief reasons that are given. And there are more reasons. If you look at a sefer like Taimam and Hagim, this also could help understand Lekach and Kaporis. You can find many other reasons associated with these uh, customs or laws that we do on Yom Kippur. Finally, Napoleon's march. If Napoleon's march signifies that we have won the war even before the battle has begun, why do we sing it at the end of Yom Kippur instead of singing it before Kol Nidre? So Napoleon's march is a custom in Chabad, that's sung Before the blowing of the shofar, after we cry, cry out Shema Yisrael once and Baruch Shem three times and Hashem O'Lekim seven times, starts Kaddish. And then we sing Napoleon's march, which was a song of victory. So most, most simple explanation is because at the end of a long Yom Kippur praying, we've prevailed. So we sing a song of victory. Anyone seeing the Rebbe during Napoleon's march will never forget the sight, the dancing, the singing, that victory that came after a long Yom Kippur. End of Ne'ilah was one of those most awesome sights. It wasn't just a sight, it also pierced heavens we can't even imagine everything that it may have accomplished. So this question is based on another statement that we say that it was a custom in certain armies when you go out to war, you begin with a song of victory with confidence that you're for sure going to win. Similar, to what it says in Tour why Jews wear white on Rosh Hashanah, because they're sure that they're going to prevail in the court of the divine court, the, the heavenly court of law. So people wore white when they were absolved. They were acquitted. They wore black when they were guilty. But Jews go in initially, even before the court assembles, with white, without confidence. So he's asking, why don't we sing it in the beginning of Kulnij? So the most likely reason is that, like I said, because now is coming a serious day of Yom Kippur. Even when they sang a song in the beginning of their battle, they still went to battle. They just had the confidence and there's a song that comes after the battle, so to speak. That's the most obvious explanation. And as I said, even though we have the confidence, Yom Kippur is a day, a serious day. That doesn't mean you sing like some choster. So everything has its place. So the concept, yes, we go into Yom Kippur wearing white, confident. But this vigilu berado, the joy has to be somewhat subdued, or at least packaged in a, a form of awe and respect. When we come out from Yom Kippur, the Holy of Holies, Sukkos comes. Sukkos reveals the joy and grows every day until its apex on Simchus So because of time limitations, there are more questions and follow-up to Rosh Hashanah. I'll have to do that later. Let me just conclude with a Chassidus question that touches on all of this. 15th of Off. The Talmud says at the end of Masech T'taynis, that there were no happier celebra- celebratory days as the, as the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. What, what is the connection between these two days which seem to be diametric opposites? One is a day of joy and dancing in the fields and couples finding shaduchim and the other is a series day of fasting and praying. So briefly, first of all, the commonality. So at the end of Titus, does say this. The commonality is, as we discussed, why is the 15th of Av such a special day? So the Gemara there gives a whole list of reasons. But the Arizal comes and says, but still, why are other 15th of, of them, even though it's the full moon, but it's the full moon that follows Tisha B'Av? No, it was the beginning of the healing. Tisha B'Av was the destruction of the first and second temple and the other events, t- tragic events. It was the rift, the schism, the break that we spoke about. Tubov is the, and the moon is not full. Tubov is the tikkun the repair, so the moon is full, the Tikkun of Malchus, as he puts it, the Yerida of Malchus, and because the Yerida, the descent was so great, so 2 Bov is in direct proportion and ascent. What is Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is the same thing. It's, it's the cause of all the problems began with the Chet Egel, the breaking of the Luchus on the 17th of Tammuz. There wouldn't have been no Tisha Bav if there was no if there was no break in the first place. So Tisha Bav is also part of the break that then leads Moshe Rabbeinu is on the mountain on Tushabov B'av, asking for forgiveness. So essentially, Yom Kippur is the conclusion of Tubov. If Tubov is the beginning of the healing, Yom Kippur is the conclusion of the healing. And that's why of the Shalosh says Chizit it's mazl is Arye. Arye is an rac- acronym, Lion Leo, an acronym for Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and which is the conclusion of the sealing of the. Of the of the verdict for the sealing of the chesima so we talk about Yom Kippur is included and a birth out of of, that's the ostensible reason. As far as yes, in of it was a very revealed way as shaduchim as you said. So there are actually commentaries that ask this question on the Mishnah and Tainus. What's the connection? Yom Kippur people didn't do that. They didn't go out into the fields. So maybe you can say, like I mentioned before, Yom Kippur is the birth of all shaduchim but in the spiritual root, the intimacy between us and God, which evolves into the connection between Zohar and Ekeva, Shaduchim down below. That may be the connection. So it's a yichud. It's a yichud of of, uh, Zohar Malchus, if you wish. Kuchibrichu but on a spiritual level, like it happens in Yom Kippur, after Moshe succeeded, Salachti Kedvarecha, to reunite and rejoin. And the lessons of all this is quite apparent about our ability to connect Recognizing that our union and our connections are all ultimately rooted in the connection we have with Hashem Echad. So, with this, we conclude episode 371 of My Life my Exodus life Applied. I want to wish everyone, Agmar Chsimeteva, Goodgi Ben Shdyar, going into Yom Kippur, may Yom Kippur finally be the ultimate culmination of the marriage between heaven and earth, between Hashem and the people, Yem Chasenosi Zemat and And this time, the Nesuyen which is with Good and a This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidah Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidahsupplied.com slash donate.